This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Today, we look at prospects of and expectations from the U.S. ASEAN relationship. A summit that was supposed to have taken place some weeks ago did not materialize because of scheduling issues and now is on the calendar again. It will be hosted by the U.S. and it will be at the White House. Now, as of this moment, we don't have any official confirmed date. It may may well be out as we speak. But regardless, what is the state of the U.S.-ASEAN relationship? And more importantly, what are the expectations? Joining me today are Elena Noor, who is Director of Political Security Affairs and Deputy Director at the Washington, D.C. Office of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Hi, Elena. Thank you for making your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Nirma. And uh, Big Chan, a non-resident adjunct fellow at the Southeast Asia Program of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, also here in D.C. So good to have you both an Asian insider. Thank you, Big, as well. Thank you for making time. Thanks, Nirma. So, Elena, if I may start with you, the U.S. has repeatedly affirmed the centrality of ASEAN. On March 29, when Singapore's Prime Minister met President Joe Biden at the White House, the two in a joint statement said they, quote, reaffirmed their strong support for ASEAN centrality and the ASEAN-centered regional architecture. Elena, could you unpack that? What are Washington's expectations of this sometimes dysfunctional group of Southeast Asian states? And what are ASEAN's expectations? Lengthy question, but it would be great to hear your take. Lengthy and huge question. I'm going to try to make sense of it. Uh, If only we could get inside the head of policymakers, right? So let me start with this notion of ASEAN centrality that you raised, Nirmal. So we've seen, I think, an almost uh, repetitive, but very welcome mantra from Washington of uh, support for ASEAN centrality. And you've seen this in the Indo-Pacific strategy. You've seen this even in the statements that have come out of Quad uh, summits as well as the AUKUS announcement. It's unclear exactly what Washington means by this, and it may well be that what Washington means uh, may not be shared by every single capital in Southeast Asia. But what we've seen from the documents is that it means uh, a stronger and empowered ASEAN in order to deliver sustainable solutions for ASEAN-related matters, for example. And I think we've seen a semblance of this with the United States and other countries, including um, regional organizing, multilateral organizations like the United Nations, kind of give leadership to ASEAN to manage the Myanmar crisis. And so I think you've seen that uh, as a concrete example in a way. But practically what it means, uh, we're not quite sure because uh, ASEAN has so far not managed to move the needle on the uh, Myanmar crisis. It hasn't so far been able to come up with a united front on uh, a position with regards to the Ukraine-Russia crisis. And certainly there's no expectation for ASEAN to have such a united position. But I think what also is in the minds of many of us who question this notion of ASEAN centrality is whether Washington really means what it says, right? So, for example, um, Washington talks a lot about having uh, ASEAN unity and centrality. But at the same time, Washington, deliberately or not, seems to be preferring certain Southeast Asian countries over others. 
And I think from the ASEAN perspective, Southeast Asian states would like to see Washington be more engaged in the region, but in an inclusive way. Um, and an example is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, because a lot of complaints coming out of Southeast Asia is that Washington really hasn't been involved economically compared to, say, other partners like China, even Japan and the European Union, for example. Now, in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the details are still very scant, of course, but it seems right now that it doesn't seem to be an inclusive framework for all 10 ASEAN member states. And so on the one hand, you have this rhetoric about support for ASEAN centrality, but on the other hand, there's also this dissonance about how Washington treats uh, Southeast Asian states as a collective within the ASEAN grouping. Interesting. Uh, uh, Bek, if I may get to you for a moment and drill down specifically on Vietnam, which is such a unique and fascinating case, a state on China's border, which understands China very well, with its own sphere of influence in the Mekong subregion, yet with a close relationship with the US, which, however, did not prevent it from abstention in the UN votes against Russia because of its traditional relationship with Russia. And that includes buying arms from Russia, just as India does, for example. Tell me, what does Vietnam specifically expect from the US and what, what does it want and what doesn't it want? Yeah, so uh, Vietnam, uh, so first it would like to continue to get, you know, support for its stand in the South China Sea. Uh, maybe not explicitly support Vietnam position, but more like criticizing China actions in the South China Sea. And the United States has been doing so in the last few years. So Vietnam would like to continue to see that. And the second element is that uh, Indina already mentioned is about more engagement in the economics field. Uh, so that I think that the two main things that Vietnam expects from the United States at the moment. What does it not expect? Does it uh, there, there's been criticism of Vietnam on human rights, for example? Yeah. So uh, Vietnam has the you know the suspicion that uh, U.S. support for you know like uh, for uh, Vietnamese descendants and also promotion of higher uh, human rights standards is aiming at overthrowing the Vietnamese Communist Party. So uh, in terms of that, Vietnam is quite sensitive in this, in this uh, issue. And you mentioned the South China Sea. So let me stay with you for a moment there, but switch to the Philippines. And Elena, I'm going to get to you as well on the Philippines. So the Philippines is holding an election next month, and it looks like there is a strong chance Bongbong Marcos will come to power. Now, if that happens, uh, Big, do you expect any shift in policy vis-a-vis -vis China? So I think that uh, it most likely stay the same uh, because, you know, in some remarks, you know, is, yeah, he said that China, you know, um, yeah, he said that Duterte, Duterte was dealing with China in the right way. So I think that there would be a, a great continuity in his policy to China. Elena, agree on that? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I learned from Filipino analysts that Bongo Marcos is the only one who does not have a platform on uh, the, the South China Sea. He does not have a foreign policy platform. And we haven't heard this very directly from him. Um, it appears that he is flexible on his positioning with regards to the South China Sea and engagement with China. So I think the jury is still out. Um, and until we get a specific... Uh, decision on who it is who will be occupying the presidency uh, in Malachanam, we, I think, uh, will leave that question open. 
Okay, Elena, Malaysia and Indonesia have expressed concern about AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US security tech arrangement, which will eventually see Australia fielding nuclear-powered submarines. How does AUKUS sit with these two countries and with ASEAN as a whole? Yeah, as you said, Nirmal, I think there's been um, more caution that have been expressed by both Jakarta and Putrajaya with regards to AUKUS. And part of the reasoning is that AUKUS is very defense-forward in its orientation compared to, say, the Quad, which seems to have a more benign agenda um, with its climate change and public health focus, amongst others. And so the worry in both countries, in Malaysia and Indonesia, is that the AUKUS arrangement will actually destabilize security in Southeast Asia. And I think if you look closely as well at some of the other statements that have come out from other countries in Southeast Asia, Singapore uh, and Vietnam included, if you look at the statements that have come out, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, those statements have also been on kind of the wariness trajectory. It's been more of a well, we'll see if this turns out to be constructive or not. But until now, we'll reserve judgment. Whereas with Indonesia and Malaysia, I think both countries have come up quite explicitly about their anxiety that it will undermine the security and, and peace in the region, especially if not managed correctly. Uh, Bek, has the stock of the United States in ASEAN increased with Joe Biden in power here? Is there any sense to that effect? What is the view of the current U.S. administration in ASEAN. We're just over a year into this new administration. Not new anymore, but yeah. So just curious as to what the ASEAN view is. Also, before I answer your question, can I come back to what uh, Elena said about Vietnam's statement? So uh, uh, Vietnam has a policy of not naming anyone. So, uh, you know, in every statement, either it's a uh, ops or AUKUS, it doesn't name any countries in there. It's always tried to stay very neutral. So some, some people say that Vietnam is very welcoming the developments, but, you know, Indonesia uh, has a different view. Uh, but for me, I think, uh, Vietnam is, you know, uh, I think, uh, from me, uh, I think Vietnam is trying to be very cautious because it's aware that uh, some of its neighbors may be wary about the development. So it's very difficult to say what uh, Hanoi is really thinking uh, just by the statements. And uh, regarding your question about the Biden administration, how it's uh, viewed in Southeast Asia, I think that uh, certainly there's uh, like a lot more positive view uh, on the, the Biden administration compared to the Trump administrations, but uh, it doesn't prevent civilizations capitals to worry about the future, you know, the next administration in the United States. Elena, any parting shot maybe on the same team? I mean, I agree with Big. There's definitely more of a welcoming stance of the Biden administration in Southeast Asia than there was a few years ago. And on from the from Washington as well, I think there's really a concerted effort and a determination, or at least an intention, to reach out more, to be present in the region as the region has um, asked of it. The I think what we're still waiting to see is whether Washington can deliver. So, Nirmal, you started off with saying that there was supposed to have been a summit. There isn't a summit just yet. Perhaps that's imminent in a month or so. Uh, we also are waiting for this Indo-Pacific economic framework and what it will eventually bring about. Because right now, 
there are no market access uh, possibilities, which is what Southeast Asia wants. Um, that said, I think despite all these perhaps delays in actual engagement, operationalization of that engagement, the fact that Washington has made the effort to show up, to reach out, to try to set something up is still viewed very positively in the region. Okay, Elena Noor, Big Chan, such a pleasure hearing from the two of you today. So glad you could come uh, on the show and find the time for this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nima. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.